There's nothing more literary than Rudy. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And And I'm I'm a a writer, writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today we have Lee Stein. Lee Stein is the author of five books, most recently the poetry collection What to Miss When and the novel Self Care. She has also written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Allure, Elle, The Cut, Salon, and Slate. She is a recipient of an Amy Award from Poets and Writers, and The Cut named her Poet Laureate of The Bachelor, which (laughs) is wonderful. (laughs) What are you going to read to us? So thank you for having me. I'm going to read a poem called Tiger King. So my poetry collection, What to Miss When, I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but it was conceived of and written during the first six months of the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of structured like the Decameron, except Mm -hmm. instead of like hot young singles fleeing to the country to tell each other fables, it's just like me at home watching reality TV and writing poems about them. (laughs) And also writing poems about the internet. Um, So this poem, Tiger King, you may remember that Tiger King was a reality show on Netflix that came out during the pandemic. Everyone was watching it. At first, it kind of tricks you because the first couple episodes are like absurd and funny, and then it takes a few really dark turns. Mm -hmm. Um, So Tiger King, the tigers become a metaphor in this poem. But the other thing you should know about this poem is that, you know, I, I kind of feel like, and I've written about this, that there were so many controversies that happened in politics and popular culture and girl boss Landia that we all kind of followed along at home, like followed along uh, with at home, like spectators. They became our spectator sports because for those of us that were lucky enough to work from home and be inside during lockdown. So this this was based on a controversy that lasted like one day on Twitter when people <laughs> found out that Lori Moore had written something for The New Yorker, which had the line, I sometimes find President Trump's voice reassuring, not what he says, not the actual words. <laughs> and that's the epigraph to this poem, which I will now read. The caged tigers are hungry for whatever you have. Walmart meat past its expiration date, a sickly calf, short story master, Lori Moore. She was asking for it when she confessed his voice soothes her like she's his pet. The caged tigers don't care about your contributions to arts and letters, that you sit in the distinguished chair you built on the grounds of your personal exotic animal park. They just want to eat. It's been weeks since anyone threw a juicy thought crime into their pen. One of the older tigers, who's been too busy birthing cubs to keep up with her New Yorker subscription, might need a younger tiger to explain how we're starving for someone to blame for our broken systems. We'd cancel a baby if it gave us five seconds of relief. In one story, Lori Moore offers a cure for depression. Stop drinking. Stop smoking, stop eating sugar, cut out caffeine. Do this for three days, she writes, then start everything back up again. Bam. As I was reading your your poems, I couldn't 
believe how much that those early days feel almost um like all that early stuff about not face touching and the and the mm-hmm. the newness of zooms and then like taking self betterment seriously and self care ha 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 um <laughs> and home haircuts and tiger king it feels wistful it feels like um nostalgic in a way mm-hmm. um we weren't so exhausted you know it's it's yeah and i know that's sort of akin to saying that i find donald trump's voice soothing <laughs> it's like <laughs> oh the beginning of the pandemic was such a lovely time but it's it's was it weird for you sort of you know as you're publishing this book later in the pandemic and the endemic or whatever it is now to to think like that it feels like such a time capsule yeah i mean it it definitely as i was writing it i was i knew i was creating a time capsule like cuz i wrote, it's the fastest thing i've ever written and I had just been writing poems for a couple of weeks and my literary agent was like, you're writing a book. Like, let's try to sell the book. And I, oh. at first I was like, I don't know. Like I was just <laughs> kind of having fun with the poems. Like part of me was like, do I really want to turn this into like a professional product? Um, but we basically sold it on a book proposal, which is very unusual in poetry. Right. Um, and I talked to my editor, Sarah Lynn Rogers, who I've known for years. She's like been following my poetry since my first poetry collection came out in 2012. So we've been on each other's radar for a long time. And um, she acquired the book. And I said, like, can I have until November to finish it? Because as you remember, this was 2020 and I didn't know what would happen with the election. And it felt like the election mm-hmm. was going to be the end of the story. I wanted to know what would happen. And she's like, we're going to need it by September 1st. Oh my God. <laughs> so I wrote the whole book in six months. And that, um, it sounds a little scary, but like the deadline actually gave the project structure. Mm. It was just like this thing I was doing in six months. But even, yeah, like I do feel a kind of nostalgia because I think at the beginning there was more of a sense of we're all in it together. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And now it's like everyone's in their own version of pandemic slash endemic. And so I do feel wistful for like, you know, one of my poems references um, the lockdown in Italy mm-hmm. where people would open their balcony windows and sing Volare, Volare, mm-hmm. whoa, mm-hmm. that song to each other. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing that video on Twitter and like crying and it was just like, um, or the applause for the uh, medical workers. There was just like this collective experience. Um, as as much as we were anxious and afraid, we were going through it together. Mm. Other than like Ed Young articles, this is the only thing I've read about that was like fully about the pandemic because I have avoided it so intensely. It's like either there's like, uh, you know, an update on vaccine for under five kids. And I'll read that on my phone quickly, Ed Young, or, and then this. And so it was like, I kind of had a similar reaction to you, Lindsay, where I was like, oh my God, like it did have a little bit of a nostalgic or wistful feel to it, but also some of it was painful to remember. Yeah. Just like, I mean, I remember the, the, so many of the poems deal with things in a, in a really funny and great way that, in the moment, you had no idea how to feel about them. And uh, it's so, I have never read a collection of poetry that was such a time capsule that I was familiar with. And so this was, it was, I was really stunned by it in that way. Um, Do you feel like it's the kind of project that you could enter into again with another topic, Lee? Or do you think because this was kind of a singular thing in your life, in all our lives, it it lended itself to the project. Well, this book is really unique because um, about 
two weeks before, um, about two weeks before lockdown, I actually remember I was, it was leap day weekend, 2020. It was like the February 29th. And my husband was in Chicago working a convention. And I was following the news out of Seattle that the virus had reached the United States. I remember when it was in China and then I remember it had reached the United States and I was talking to him on the phone and I said, is attendance down because of the news of the virus? And he said, attendance is higher than it's ever been. (gasps) And I had been frustrated for a while with how much wine I was drinking. And for some reason, that was just the weekend where I was like, this has, I have to make a change. I'm going to stop drinking for 30 days. Cause I thought 30 days, like that seems manageable. I'm not saying I'm quitting forever. I think I could do this as a project. 10 days later, I started writing poetry again for the first time in 10 years. I wow. I had like lost poetry and I'd written prose during that whole period. And I thought like, oh, there's just this other part of my brain that's being exercised and I'm just not a poet anymore. But the poems just started coming. And the first poem I wrote was Think Starlight, which opens the collection, which is this metaphor that was printed in the New York Times that kind of opened up a poem in my brain, which is this metaphor of you know, once there are deaths in a community, think starlight. The virus is already there. It's mm-hmm. it's not far away. Um, it's already here. Mm-hmm. So I started writing these poems and I ended up not drinking for 104 days. So for most of the period of writing the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I hadn't have stopped drinking, I would have never written this book. So it was like wow. this perfect collision of I stopped drinking. It opened something up in my mind and my world completely shrunk to... Yeah the size of my house. <laughs> mm. So um, I think it was just like a perfect storm. So I can't imagine, I'm, I'm working on a new book now that I'm trying to write and I'm like, why is this so hard to concentrate? And it's like, <laughs> to compare those two experiences, it's just, it's surreal. I can't even imagine what would have to happen for me to have that same experience again. Mm. Is it fiction that you're writing now or is it? Yes, I'm writing another novel. I'm trying to follow up self-care. I feel like I'm setting a pretty high bar, bar, high bar for myself. <laughs> No, don't don't put that pressure on yourself. Just just close your eyes <laughs> and keep writing. <laughs> Do you think of yourself as a poet first? Yeah, poetry was my first love and poetry feels like poet feels like an identity more than novelist feels like an identity. Mm. Um poetry like I've been writing since I was a teenage girl it just feels like I I was born to be a poet like I just finished reading the 900 page biography of Sylvia Plath okay Lee you inspired me to get that from the library it's incredible I I saw you post about it on Instagram I could not believe how big that thing was (laughs) 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 no your description of it in your post I, I was like I have to read this and I put it on hold at the library and I went to pick it up and I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> yeah, it really is as long as I just, uh, it's like 900 pages is not like a, no, I'm not joking. And that's not including, <laughs> that's not including the notes, the footnotes. Right. That's anything. not including yeah. the notes. Yeah. Oh but God. she was such an influence on me. Like I remember the thrift store where I got a copy of Ariel as a teenage girl oh, and it was right wow. near my psychiatrist's office. Oh and gosh, this sounds like almost on. like the most perfect story. It couldn't possibly be true, but it's what I remember. I love it. But I was so influenced by her. I loved Anne Sexton too. Um, just, I hated, I hated English class. I hated school. I hated mm. all the assigned reading. I just wanted to be left alone to like read confessional poetry. Mm. <laughs> um, and that really influenced me. And so I'm a poet, I'm a poet at heart. Um, but yeah, for 10 years, I didn't write any poetry. What, what did that, 
feel like? Did it feel like there was a part of you that shut off or did it feel like, um, as we always like to say, closing a door opened a window or something, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think this is why I connect so much to Sylvia Plath is she was so ambitious and driven and she wanted to make money from her writing. Mm. And when you read the biography, it's just so incredible because Ted Hughes just wanted to be like a pure artist, like walking the moors. And she was like, we're going to enter this stuff into contests and try to get paid money so that we can buy a house. And so I have that part of myself too. It's like, I, um, I want to earn money for my writing. Mm-hmm. And so I have to do a calculation there where I'm like, well, is poetry going to be the path? No, probably not. So I, that's why I started writing my first novel, The Fallback Plan. I thought I had to write a quote unquote real book. Um, so my first book to come out was The Fallback Plan. And then my poetry collection came out shortly thereafter that same year. But I knew that to earn money from writing, I had to learn to write prose. And so I really studied it. Um, and I've written, so I've written three books of prose and two books of poetry at this point, but yeah, poetry, it just has a special place in my heart. Isn't it wild that we have to be like, yes, I would like to earn money from my writing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please. May I? (laughs) Is that all right? Is that okay to say out loud? (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) Um, I want to go back to, uh, what it was like writing what to miss when it was a very fast project for you. And you said you, you know, you weren't drinking for the majority or, or all of it. What, what did your day look like when you would sit down to write? Were you working on one poem? Were you sort of dipping in and out? Yeah. So the difference was when I wrote poems, so I'm in my mid 30s, I guess late thirties now, but um, my previous collection of poetry that those poems were all written in my twenties and I wrote poems and I never edited them. So either I got it on the first try or I abandoned it, but I mm-hmm. never edited poems because it felt like, how could you touch it? It felt so delicate. Mm-hmm. So I just judged my poetry based on did it work or did it not work, but I didn't know how to edit it. And for this collection, it was different because I had this relationship with my editor, Sarah, and she was such a good editor because she's so she's so detail oriented like I am, but she also like gives the writer a lot of space. So she's never very um she's never very prescriptive, but she asks really smart questions. And so because we had to do this book so quickly, like I was sending her drafts, and this was the first time I had to like edit my own poems. Oh my god! And it was a little scary at first, um, but because she was holding my hand and because her comments were so good, like for example. During that 10-year period when I wasn't writing poetry, I was learning to write opinion pieces, which have a very specific structure. You're making an argument. You're anticipating your critics. You're backing up your argument with evidence. And sometimes I would give her these poems and she's like, this is a little like this is a little like pedantic or this is like a little heavy handed. And she was right. And so when I started like turning my, (laughs) it was like I was writing op-eds in verse or something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so her guidance and her eye on those moments and suggestions for revision, it was so helpful. I was so glad to have her. So that is one difference about um, writing these poems. But in terms of my daily process, I'm a morning writer. Um, I often like have an idea the night before. So if I'm like cooking dinner or doing dishes, I'll get some idea. So I might get a line the mm-hmm. night before. Mm-hmm. So I'm not starting from nothing. That's really hard. 
or the night before I watched Back to the Future or something. So my husband and I were like picking TV shows and films to watch together as a, <laughs> as part of the project so that I could write poems about them because I have some poems about movies that are like time trippy, like Back to the Future or Palm Springs with Andy Samberg because time time feels so disorienting in the mm -hmm. pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I would get an idea the night before usually and then I would start in the morning, but like the poems took one or two hours and then they were done. And then it was like I was high as a kite for the rest of the day. Like the mm -hmm. days when I wrote a poem, I just every nothing else could bother me. Like it just it just started off my days on such a positive note. I was so it was it was such a manageable like project, you know, because mm -hmm. it wasn't a novel. I can't imagine writing a novel in six months during the pandemic. Like that just that process is so much more intense and immersive and like you go down the wrong street and then you have to turn around. But a poem, it can be completed in a single session. And there's something really satisfying about that for me. I loved the the poems that were about movies that were kind of outside the 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 flow of up to the minute pandemic stuff in in the collection like there was the, the inside man poem was particularly stop stop me uh and the groundhog day one was excellent too because it seemed like those lee brought us into like a little bit closer to to you as far as like that was where maybe deviating from from a headline or something it was like like you were saying you know something that you were doing with your husband or kind of where your head was at and that was and although that was, you know, personal to you, that was such a universal thing, just diving into something with your partner at home, because what the hell else are we going to do? We're going to watch <laughs> Inside Man or whatever. I love that. I hope I hope you return to something like that in your work, because it seems like you have a real knack for that kind of, I don't know, uh, just sharp, pithy look at, at this stuff that's that's with us already. Well, thank you, Alex. It's funny because like a, a question I often get at events or like a comment I get is, aren't you worried that your poems are going to be dated in the future? Like no one's going to understand them in the future. <laughs> My God. Like, like people won't know what Groundhog Day is or people don't won't know what Facebook is. But it's like Emily Dickinson was writing about her time too. Like Shakespeare right. was writing about his time. It's just that like their quote unquote pop culture references. Um, like she was writing about the language of flowers and we don't know what that means today. Right. But it doesn't mean we can't understand her poetry. So like all poetry is of its time. Absolutely. Um, and the inside man, like we watched that movie, but there was like nothing in there for me to write a poem about. It was almost a disappointment. Like I was wasting my time. <laughs> I think it's my favorite um, poem in the book. Oh, that's so funny. But then I went on Wikipedia and I read this anecdote about how Denzel Washington turned down the lead role of the ro masked robber because you can't ask act in a mask. Right. And I was like, masks everywhere you look. Suddenly like masks, you know, the original title for the book was going to be Viral Experience. Oh, yes. Which I thought was good because it's kind of internet-y and it's about the mm -hmm. virus. But then I realized like this book isn't going to be about the virus because I'm, you know, privileged enough to just be inside my house except when mm -hmm. I go to the grocery store. So I never got COVID. I never wrote a poem about having COVID. It's really just um, what to miss when because it's about being inside and just everything that I did and scrolled through mm -hmm. um, while indoors. It feels it's so interesting. I mean, obviously we've, you know, we've all mentioned obviously it's a time capsule and it's a particular thing, but what you just said kind of elucidated something that I hadn't really put together, but it really is an American book in that way, because 
the even though you know so much of what is happening has happened with the pandemic over the past you know several years it's affected everybody all over the world but the experiences in this book uh poem by poem they really are filtered through such an american work from home they're focalized through that 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 viewpoint and it 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 is so much more specific than i guess i had realized i i didn't work from home through the pandemic but all of it was obviously so familiar and it would be so interesting to have someone from another country read this and and talk about it or something i just i'm i'm curious how universal some of this is or how or how particular it might be to to our experience as americans that's a great question. I mean, like, I, I am very careful to say when I talk about the book, you know, I'm not saying that my experience of the pandemic was a universal one. I could never say that. I'm oh, writing about a very specific, you know, I jokingly refer to it as like the laptop class experience <laughs> where I'm, you know, I work, I already worked on Zoom. So I already knew what Zoom was before the pandemic started. That wasn't a big Ooh, transition for me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I'm, I'm, I wouldn't claim it's universal. Um, another, you know, I, at the very beginning, I like went and stood in front of my bookshelf looking to read something by someone who had survived something like this. And I thought, mm -hmm. what can I read? And I reread um, Tony Kushner's Angels in America. Mm -hmm. And I reread The Second Coming by Yates. And I reread Anne Frank's diary. And what some people don't know about Anne Frank is that um, uh, a couple years into her hiding, the Dutch Minister of Education, who was in exiled in London, went on the radio and broadcasted um, to the Dutch people and said, if you're keeping a diary during the war, please save it. Or if you're writing letters during the war, please save it, because at the end of the war, you want to collect all these records. Oh and God. everyone in the annex looked at Anne because they knew that she had a diary. And so Anne revised her own diary. She intended oh for it to be public. She wanted to become a journalist when she grew up. She wanted to be a writer. And she finished her revision of her diary three days before the Gestapo came. Oh my Jesus God. Christ. I so love I, that final line in, in your Anne Frank poem that she would have loved how much we loved her or how much yes. we love her. Um, beautiful. I think that's true. So she's like, along with Sylvia Plath, like Anne Frank has been one of the greatest influences of my life. And so I was really thinking of her as I was writing this book, not because I think being inside my house in the suburbs is like living under Nazi Germany, but because- <laughs> Okay, Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> hit me. Um, but because she wanted to create a time capsule, she wanted to create a record of what was happening. And I had that same instinct. You know, I was writing these poems in real time. My book is more like a diary than a memoir because a memoir is retrospective and a diary is in real time. So this is like my diary of these six months. It's just written in verse. I remember someone um, saying on Twitter, you, you should, you should be take, keeping a diary. You should be writing down your daily thoughts and, and, you know, like what you do every day during this time, because this is a, a historic period. And I, and my first instinct, um, which is always my first instinct with things that end up being huge, um, like a lot of Apple products, I'm like, eh, that was my first <laughs> instinct was like, man, eh, whatever, because I think it, it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about with, with this, like almost sweet period of this first six months. I think I believed it would be over. And I, and I thought it's not historic, you know, we're going to get through this, mm. like, this is going to, you know, we're going to stay home for 30 days and then it's going to be fine. 
Um, and I right at the beginning, they were just saying two weeks to flatten the curve. Right, exactly. Man, remember we used to all hashtag that, you know, like <laughs> we're like hashtag flatten the curve, you know. Um, and yeah. I and I remember thinking like, yeah, what do I have to say? You know, like I woke up and I made you know breakfast for my kids, and the next day I woke up and I made breakfast for my kids. <laughs> but I think like what Alex is saying is it's you know the the very Americanness of it, the very specificity of it is what makes it so poignant to me. Mm, definitely. You know, it's almost like um, I'm thinking of like Emily St. John Mandel talking about how um, in Station Eleven, she wanted to write it like a, a love letter to humanity. And she did that by erasing a lot of it, you know, and 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 it just kind of brings you to this moment where you're hovering like still in the before and you're entering the during and the after. And it's um, it's just it's just this poignance, this nostalgia, this this sweet sadness. Especially because mm. you couldn't write this book now. Right. Not if, if everything, I mean, if you stop drinking tomorrow for 104 days and try to do this project, it just would not happen. It's we're too, everything is too, I, I don't even have a word. Fucked. Is yeah. Word. We're, I think like, didn't they say um, <laughs> that, that the character in Groundhog Day was stuck in, in, in the day for, what did he say? It was like 10 years or is it longer? <laughs> Oh, I forget how long it was. It was so long. I mean, we're he like, tried suicide. He yeah, tried everything. That's where we are. We're like, we're like in year nine. Yeah, and we're jumping half. off the roof. Yeah. And so our poetry book would be like, fuck it. <laughs> you know? I mean, I hope, I hope we're in year nine and a half, you know? Uh, like, right, right. Yeah. No, th- there's, even when I read back some of the poems, if I'm doing a reading like this or whatever, there's details in there where I'm like, oh, I've totally forgotten that. Even though I wrote it down myself. Yeah. Yes. I remember early in the pandemic being at the grocery store the first time I was wearing a mask at the at the grocery store. And I remember oh looking God. at other people in a mask and thinking, remember this, remember this, mm-hmm. this isn't normal, mm-hmm. remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had that instinct like every day, like every day there was something insane. And so the poems were a way to just do that. Remember this, remember this, to just write it down before I forgot because it was something new and insane every day. Yeah. Yep. I, think- I only I only recently realized I could move my face under my mask. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what the fuck. I can, like walk around with my mouth completely frozen. Don't move. <laughs> I know. And recently I was like, I what am I doing? <laughs> I can relax oh under here. I think the reason I haven't read about anything other than, you know, the essential updates is I feel like my, my memory is just erased every day since the start of the pandemic. I I'm a manager Mm, at a grocery store Lee. And so it's been, it's been kind of an interesting past couple of years for me work-wise. And uh, yeah, I feel like everything I'm trying to do is like run from the reality of my day. And it's different now. Everything is kind of calmed and gotten more intense in a way that is more predictable than it was the beginning of the pandemic but i want to read a poetry collection by a manager of a grocery store exactly we have been telling him yeah oh my god where are those poems i know yeah there's no poems there's no poetry um i wish um but yeah no but what i was gonna say is i that's why i i i loved going back into it in this way because you know, there, there were touch points, certainly. I mean, I remember watching the last dance with my wife and it was like, I remember it like a series of dates or something. Like it's romantic to think (laughs) about like, Oh my God. Like you, you shared that experience. Yeah. It was amazing. And she's a, she's a Chicago kid and we've been out here forever. So, but yeah, there's, it's, it's kind of amazing how 
how tinged with uh, with nostalgia some of this absolute just garbage TV can be. <laughs> Not that that was garbage, but it's just it's all bullshit. I mean, like, and I'm I'm wistful for it as, as Lindsay was saying. Simpler times. <laughs> yeah, and when I mean, I was nervous too because I was like, well, I you know I wrote the book in 2020. And then I thought, well, by the time it comes out in August 2021, will will anyone still be thinking or talking about the pandemic? Oh my god! <laughs> I feel like I feel like every three months we're like, okay, this is it. That's yeah. it. Okay, we can move on. And then it's like, oh, there's this weird variant over in some country. Maybe it won't come here. <laughs> it always does. With uh, without revealing too much, Lee, is is the project you're working on now? Does it deal with the pandemic? <laughs> It's a great question. Um, I'm trying not to write about the pandemic, but for it to take place now, I mean, I write in a very contemporary mode. Right. So I'm like, I'm like lightly alluding to it, but it's not going to be part of the plot. Got it. Do you feel like you hear from your editor or your agent, like, no, don't write a pandemic novel? Because I feel like I feel like that's in the air. It's in the air. Yes, I feel the same. I think unfairly. I mean, I had a buddy who was saying, can you imagine, you know, right after World War II or something, if they said, oh, but don't do not mention the war. And that really stayed with me. I feel like, you know, good writing is going to conquer any of those uh, concerns. And I feel like we've all lived through this. And if you're writing in a contemporary time and you want to do it in a certain way, bringing the pandemic in, in some ways, and like you're saying, it can be with a light touch or with a you know, a very particular slant, but it, it, to me, it's like, it seems kind of nuts not to, if you're writing about the present day. Did you guys watch the new season of you on Netflix? No, I watched the first couple. No, I haven't seen it either. They mention the pandemic just briefly as sort of like a, like a, a community scandal because um, some people went on vacation and they weren't wearing their masks or whatever. And when that happened, I remember thinking like, Oh, Oh, I'm so glad they did that. You know, like acknowledging that, Mm. that it was a thing. Now the rest of the show, no one wore masks and no one talked about it, but, um, so I can see I'm of two minds. I, I, you know, I, I feel like everyone is very ready for the nonfiction and the poetry, um, the memoir, the almost, you know, the diaries, um, Charles Finch had a book out about the first year of, of the pandemic as well. Um, but but for some reason there's just sort of a distaste if if you're going to do it in fiction and maybe that's because we don't know the end yet. Mm, that's interesting. I think it's so interesting what you said, Alex, about using because I've heard people say, "Well, look at 9/11," but I think World right. War II is a really interesting example. And then I think we'll look at World War One, like because of World War One we have modernism, like that right. came out of World mm-hmm. War One. And one of my favorite books is like Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, sure. which has this whole like devastating section that's just all about death. Like, and it's very connected to the, to the mindset after that, like feudal deadly war. Mm-hmm. Um, is, it, is it about like, oh, they won't, these kinds of books won't sell right now? Well, I think that's the question is like to anticipate what the reader two years from now, like what's the reader in 2024 going to want? And of course, there's different readers who want different things. But if you're trying to sell in a certain vein, like if you're trying to sell escapist women's fiction, 
no, I don't think you should put the pandemic, right? Because that's not why the reader's picking up your book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see like dystopian novels doing really well in the future. Like, I feel like when we're emerging from this, which I hope is, <laughs> as oh, Lindsay gosh. said, every three months when we emerge from this, mm-hmm. yeah. um, what do we turn to? You know, there was a tweet that went viral by Lisa Lucas, who's the head of Pantheon, saying like, what up, where Lisa? are the submissions about joy? Yeah. Like, why aren't I getting things across my desk about joy? Like, I'm getting all this stuff about trauma. And that is true, too, from my vantage point as a book coach. I get a lot of people emailing me saying, I'm working on a book about trauma. Like, no one else is writing about this right now. And I'm like, I'm sorry to tell you, like, everyone's (laughs) writing about trauma. It's all I hear about all day long is trauma, 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 trauma. So, you know, that Pruel Seagal piece in The New Yorker was really interesting Mm -hmm. to me because, Mm -hmm. like, what's next? Because I feel like we're in that moment. So then what comes after that? Because all these things move in cycles. I I definitely think that within the next two years, there's going to be a huge lit fic novel about uh, a mother or a father coming to terms with their mental health, raising kids, making decisions about vaccinations with their family, traveling for holiday there's going to be a straight ahead realist lit fic novel that is going to be a massive bestseller it's going to be an hbo show i am i would if if i could place a bet i don't care what the odds would be i'm positive this is true someone why don't is, you write that alex i don't want to <laughs> but, but some, to. someone is going to nail that and it's going to be you know i don't know fucking tom holland's going to be in the movie or something and it's going to <laughs> It's going to be great, but I don't know, but I, but you're right. It, it's, it's hard to know. And I think, I don't know, all the generalities about, you know, what a certain type of reader is going to want is tough because I think there's obviously truth to it. And within certain genres, for sure, it's, it's tough, but I, I but definitely yet, think someone's going to face it head on and, and just nail it. And we're still talking about to the lighthouse, which was right. of its moment, mm-hmm. you know, like we were just talking about. Right. So it has to be of its moment has to be what readers want in the, you know, in that time, but also what we talk about down the line, you know? And I feel like that only happens when you're like, okay, fuck it. I know in the air is this, but I just have to pay attention to what I feel like I need to write. Yeah. Again, again, I'm just thinking about what I just said a few minutes ago with like these poems. It's like, I didn't have any scope. Like the poem was such a perfect vessel because it's so tiny and so micro and it's complete on its own. But to write a novel, you need that scope. So I'm sure people are working on this right now, but I think, I think once it ends, once we really see what the off ramp looks like, then whoever is writing that novel right now, like they'll be able to see where they're going. But that would be amazing that if like the central conflict was about like vaccinating children. I mean, mm-hmm. that would be that would be a juicy conflict for a novel. Hundred percent. That's going to be an, an HBO show or a novel. I'm positive. I would bet anything. It's just too good. It's too. It's too fraught. I mean, I have oh. I have two kids. I have two kids under five right now. So mm-hmm. it's like of course selfishly on my mind but i want to talk about your amazing cover oh they did such a good job so when i started writing these poems i decided at first this was before self-care came out so i was like i'll start a poetry newsletter and then like when self-care comes out i can be like hey poetry subscribers so at first it was gonna be like a marketing plan for my novel and did i i think i found this painting so this is a waterhouse painting from like 1917 of the decameron 
And then my husband just made me like a quick graphic in um, Photoshop to use for my newsletter. So I had actually found this painting and then Soft Skull asked me what I pictured for the cover, which is actually a really hard question for someone like me because I'm just not visual. Mm. Obviously, because my husband had to make my graphic in Photoshop. I can't use <laughs> Photoshop. I have no design sense. Um, I don't think in images. I think in words. So I told Soft Skull that I really liked Jennifer Knox's poetry book covers. Do you remember those like early Jennifer Knox collections that are like, oh. they are like vintage. They're so, um, they're really campy. They look like Nancy Drew novels or something. Oh, cool. oh, I love so that. there's something about mixing old and new. And then I said like, this book is really online. So I'm picturing like screens. That's what I said. And then what they came back with is the Waterhouse painting in a series of screens that zoom in on this woman's face and she looks bored as she's listening mm -hmm. and i love to joke that this is just like a picture of me when i'm on zoom <laughs> like it's just that like you're looking at your own face and you're like when is this going to be over that's why we turn off the cameras lee yeah i appreciate that very much i'm like getting a vacation just like not having my camera on that's the best <laughs> yeah we uh we're tired of looking at ourselves in front of other people. I mean, I'll look at myself all day long alone. <laughs> <laughs> Let me look at myself in private. <laughs> yes, please. Um, yeah, I absolutely love it. And it just somehow captures exactly what the book is about and, and the moment that we're in. And I love the fact that they're listening to a man. <laughs> yeah. They're listening to a man drone on. It's so good. They do such good covers over there at soft skull. Um, yes. Michael Salu house of what is it called? House of thought. Nice. their designer what's it like working with soft school i love their books so much oh it was great it was just like such a treat i mean i've been with i've published a couple books with penguin imprints imprints and i've published some indie books and um the experience with soft school was just really great and because especially because of my editor sarah just getting to work with just getting to work with someone like closely on like which word should go in this line and should we cut the word of like that level of detail you don't really get on prose manuscripts so it was just really fun to have that level of attention god i would love that yeah. <laughs> it's so nerdy it's it so is, nerdy but it's, but it's so awesome cleansing do you feel like you have the same back and forth with an editor like with your fiction no with fiction it's so much more macro and this is another reason I really feel like a poet because I write fiction so slowly. I oh, like really? I'm literally working on one sentence at a time. Because mm -hmm. you're a poet. And every because I'm a poet. And so like every morning when I'm writing fiction, like I am now, like I go back and I reread what I wrote the day before and I'll like rewrite a sentence and like a half hour has gone by. Like it's not very efficient at all. <laughs> but then I'm like, why should I stop doing the thing that brings me pleasure? Like that's what brings me pleasure. Right. So, I, but I've also had people say to me like, oh, your novels don't read like poetry at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm just like, but I put so much thought into each of them. Oh, oh my God. How long um, did it take you to write self-care? Two years. Okay. That seems like a normal amount of time. Yeah, that feels like a normal amount of time. I wish I was faster. Um, I always wish I was faster. Like I'm very jealous of writers that write faster. And I, and this advice to write the shitty first draft and edit later, like I've never been able to figure that out. I don't buy it. I don't know how to put down words yeah, I don't quickly. Really get it. <laughs> I think it's bullshit, to be honest. Okay, good. <laughs> Like when people say that, I'm like, eh, you're full of shit. I don't know. 
I, know, I think I do, you can do it if you don't know what you're doing. Yes. I think people work like that. Well, we just talked to Liv. Liv was taught Liv Stratman who wrote um, yeah. Cheat Day and she's working on her next novel. And she was talking about how she has to make a big old mess. And then she goes well, back in. But she also said that she had a very particular approach on a daily basis that she was using in a very That's regimented true. way. That's true. And she had like a huge framework for like section by section that she was thinking about it. So I think she is definitely doing something other than a shitty first draft. She may be making a mess, but she's not throwing shit onto the computer. She is, has a plan day to day. (laughs) We respect you, Liv. We respect you, Liv. I did start learning plot. So I taught myself plot before I wrote self-care. So it's the most plotted novel I've written. How did you Um, teach yourself plot? (laughs) Well, um, my friend Julia Phillips told me to read this book called Anatomy of Story by John Truby. Okay. And Jean Kwok is the one who told her to read it. So it's kind of just like this thing that you pass from writer to writer. And uh, it basically changed everything for Julia and it changed everything for me. So I just read this book and he has this seven step formula. It's not, it's a seven step. What is it? What should I call it? Like a seven step outline. Um, but it really the thing it really clarified for me is um like the difference between desire and need in fiction so desire is like your character's explicit goal like your your main character like wants to get the job wants to get the guy um whatever they want to do that's explicit and their need is internal so they want to get the job but their need is really you know to feel like they have value and self-worth but when i talk to so many Um, novelists who are working on something so often when I say what's your novel about it's like well it's about someone who like really needs to feel valued and worthy but that's the internal part and I'm not reading novels to follow the internal journey the internal journey is like the bonus you get by following the external desire so that kind of thing it just like lights my brain up and um, I really had fun plotting self-care and and I am a faster writer if I know exactly what I'm doing, like live. So like when there was a scene where I'm like, okay, I know exactly that this is the scene where this thing happens, I could write that much faster. But when I'm kind of noodling around and meeting my characters and just like figuring out which word to use to describe the sofa or something, then I'm just really slow and pokey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love that. I absolutely love that. And you can really tell. Um, I, I know lots of listeners have probably read self-care, but if you haven't, it is quite a joy at the sentence level. Well, thank you, Lindsay. I'm not saying it's a book of poems or anything. I think yeah. people expect me to write because they once they know I'm a poet, they think it's going to be like very lush, mm. like luscious and lyrical, but that's not the way I write. If you read my poems and you read self-care, I think you can tell they're by the same writer. Yes, like absolutely. they sound similar. Um, I think it's the first episode of Girls where Lena Dunham's character is telling her parents, I want to be the voice of my generation and then she pauses and she's like or a voice of my generation <laughs> or a voice of a generation <laughs> yes, yes. And it's I so funny like your voice is such a voice of this moment you know I, I feel like it really is this is something that we can all go back to and remember not just the pandemic you know like this whole online life self-care obsession um shallow depth <laughs> you know yeah uh, people not not you the the characters that you have um and i just you know the way that you are able to capture that is so amazing well thank you i mean 
I feel like my sense of humor is how I live. Like I would die mm. if I couldn't laugh at all this. So finding those moments of satire or hypocrisy or absurdity and being able to write about them is just like one of my, probably my biggest coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Leah, I have to ask you because of the, uh, the bit in your bio about the bachelor. I'm going to ask you about two reality shows. I just want to know if you watch them. <laughs> okay. Do you watch summer house and do you watch Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Okay, I don't even know what Summer House is, so you'll have oh, to fill me in. God. I have what seen are you doing? Se- I've seen season one of Salt Lake City. It was like nuts. It it has leveled up in such a beautiful way. I just need you to bring it back into your life. I, I just I don't <laughs> okay. need like a solemn promise, but I'm just putting it out there for oh. you that it's gonna make your life better. <laughs> what is Summer House? Summer House takes uh characters from uh god one of the bravo bullshit shows i watch and another one of the bravo bullshit shows i watch and puts them in a house together like below deck or something Uh, maybe maybe yeah no uh, no not below deck it's just one. i mean we watch all of them so i don't know but uh (laughs) it's just beautiful summer house is beautiful too you should you should put that in your life as well i also didn't know what summer house was that's okay (laughs) <laughs> is the pitch for summer house like it's below deck but it's in a house it could be <laughs> yeah it's like you know still it's like below deck but there's people? no ship yeah something okay. like that okay. sure um i want to say that i was the first to like below deck i was in on the first season um that's the only season i've watched that's all i'm gonna say you know who else loves below first. deck is steven soderbergh Oh, really? <laughs> He's a fucking maniac for it. I don't know if you guys, so he puts up a list every year of everything he watched and read on his website. Like every, like, you know, if he watched one episode of one show, he'll put it on this list. And um, I always look at the list because it's fascinating. And like half of his list, you know, it'll be like some <laughs> like super esoteric, you know, criterion movie, whatever. And then it'll be like, season three below deck like whatever and he is just crushing below decks it's it made me like i always liked him but now i'm like you are my man i love you alex you know what was on his list for 2021 oh were you on there self-care by lee stein there you go of course so exciting i was one of the last books he read last year like in december i love it he also read uh Lindsay, what's your buddy's name? The want. What is what is the book? Oh, Lynn Stager Strong. Yeah, he read that one too. He's, oh, he's amazing. Great taste. Big this is becoming Steven Soderbergh fan fan pod. He's the you best. know, he loves I'm a writer, but so hi Steven. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Thanks for tuning in, Steven. We love you. Yeah, he um he gets all his book recs from us. So um <laughs> well, Lee, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, and the book is What to Miss When. It came out last August, so you have already missed it. (laughs) But it's not too late. It is not too too late. late. And I'm so excited that you're working on another book. I can't wait to hear that it's been sold and that I can buy it and read it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me and talking um, pandemic with me, pandemic poetry with me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Go watch Summer House. Okay, will do. (laughs) Bye. Bye. I got to ask you, Mm. how many bets did you put on the Super Bowl?
Uh, just one so far. <gasps> just one. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll give you my Super Bowl breakdown right here. Okay. Okay. So Rams defensive line. We're worried about that, obviously. Okay. Uh, Joe Burrow hasn't faced a lot of great defenses over the last second half of the season. And he doesn't have a great offense. He's got a decent offense, right? He's okay, eh. but you know, but Bengals have had you know been really lucky in the turnover game been super opportunistic i think that's going to keep going i think that stafford's going to turn the ball over i like Bengals plus four that is what i'm doing that was my bet so that's the only bet you made just Bengals plus four yeah do you do any prop bets i'm gonna if the one that i feel good about is Stafford over 1.5 picks. I feel like he's going to throw two interceptions. Mm. That's all I got. Why you got stuff? Well, Ben always um, reads me all his favorite prop bets. So like I was telling him, yes, I think the national anthem will go over 96 seconds. Mm. I think okay. it'll Did be Did you heads. do any research or are you just going? Oh, like, no. just... I'm going by my gut. Okay. Okay. So it's not great. Okay. It's okay. not great. <laughs> um, yes. I think there will be a field goal over 47 yards. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. And I think there will be a short field goal. Um, but, you know. And a shorty. Yeah, like like 20 yards. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, this is a good one. So the MVP mm-hmm. of the game, who are they mm-hmm. going to thank first? Oh. God, family, or his teammates? Okay. Well, I think that the MVP is probably going to be – best bet would be it's going to be one of the quarterbacks. That's what Ben said. And so I'm going to say that they're going to thank their family first. Okay. Um, he was like, yeah, Stafford's like a wife kind of guy. So like, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, yeah. He said it like the last 12 of 13 MVPs were quarterbacks. Um, but I was thinking of like me might, might be one of the, like the running backs or. Sure. Um, could be. Could be. Never know. Yeah. You never know. There's no Gronk in the game. So, you know, there's less of a chance right. of that happening, but uh can you imagine rooting for the Rams tomorrow, though? I mean, I like, know. if you're rooting for the Rams tomorrow, don't listen to this podcast. Unsubscribe. Get out of here. Ben said, this is a lot of football talk for a literature podcast. I'm sorry, guys. Who cares? Listen, there's nothing more. There's nothing more literary than Rudy. Okay. There's nothing more literary than gambling on sports. Yeah, there actually is nothing more literary than gambling on sports, honey. He said it upsets the ghost of DFW. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Publishing is just gambling. It's all gambling. Yes. Okay. Okay. It's all gambling. All right. Say it. (laughs) Um, I didn't get to ask Lee about like how she's basically on a streak. She is because she's she publishes like every couple years. I just love the way you said it. She's basically on a streak. She is on a streak, and that is pretty awesome. It is awesome. Well, Two fortune cookies here. I just I think we should open the fortune cookies and look at what the fortune is. Okay, so is one of them for you and one of them for me, or for are they? Yeah, that's both? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, yeah. Do you open... want the broken one or the unbroken one? I'll take the broken one. In the spirit okay, of Marcel one. Duchamp. Okay, your fortune, Lindsay. Ooh, you will soon be asked a very important question. Come on, man. That could be like anything. I know. Isn't that the kind of the idea, though? What big important question could I have at this point? I guess, like, will you be 
will you allow us to publish all of your unpublished novels? Yes. Yes, I accept. I accept. Oh, mine's fucking sucks. What's yours? Oh, this is amazing. So I have one and then I have half of another one, which is just beautiful. <laughs> Listen to this. Okay. A thrilling adventure is in your fu- your near future. And then I have half of your dreams will lead you to a, and then cut off. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's that's a curse. I was just cursed. That's a writing prompt, everyone. <laughs> I was telling Parker the plot of that book, The Ruins. Have you ever read that book? Have not. It's um a, like a bunch of dum-dums go on vacation and then they want to go visit the site of, of these very old ruins. And like okay. the natives are like, no, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> And don't go near that mountain over there. And then they do. And then the natives force them all up the mountain. And the natives mm-hmm. refuse to go anywhere near the mountain because <clears throat> the mountain is cursed. It's where the ruins are. And then like this vine starts, <laughs> this vine starts killing all of them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's, it's like, it's actually quite scary. Um, it doesn't end well for literally anyone. The vine can mimic sounds. It, it mimics the sound of one of their cell phones and like lures them into a cave. Okay. Um Anyway, but that's what that's what that made me think of when you said you're about to go. <laughs> oh, that was a long walk for that, and I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, um, but yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the poems that I've gotten to read in Lee's book. Um, and like I said, that's it's very, very, it's a very strange feeling reading them and remembering, like, yeah. oh my god. Like my kids couldn't have haircuts forever. Mm-hmm. And then I, I still haven't done a haircut. Yeah. Oh, because you shave your head, right? I just uh, buzzing it, but I never did that before the pandemic. Yeah. It doesn't matter how a dad looks. I, this is my big to the world. A dad <laughs> can just look like whatever. <laughs> you wear it well. You wear it well. And you've trimmed yeah. a mustache. Yeah, right? I got a mustache because again, it doesn't matter how a dad looks. You can have a mustache, you can just be a fucking lunatic. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I finished reading Natasha Jakovsky's book, Portrait of a Mirror. Nice. Um, future guest. Future guest in, in a long time because we're so booked up, but I'm excited to talk to her. I had all these profound thoughts because of her book. Um, mm-hmm. even as I feel like way too stupid for it, like the language is so, <laughs> so precise and, um, technical sometimes and, um, uh, advanced <laughs> and it's a delight. It is a damn delight. And, um, yeah. like the characters aren't, aren't exactly likable, but I miss them. Like I find myself thinking about them all the time. Um, what a compliment. Yeah. So, so she did the damn thing. That's and it also great. feels like, like a hell of a risk for her to take for this book. Cool. So I'm excited to like grill her about all of that. Nice. Um, I'm excited to read it. Cool. And then I'm rereading Ella Baxter's yeah. new animal, which I'm, I'm doing an event with her um, this Wednesday. If oh, it's on Wednesday. Awesome. On Wednesday. Oh, I, can do it. I, can, I can see it. Awesome. Yay. Um, it is so, so the first time I read it, cause I blurbed the book, I mm-hmm. was struck by how hilarious it is. And it is, it's like every page, there's something wildly funny. 
but the the net this time around as i'm reading it um it's incredibly sad it's it's and and also i'm i'm struck by because i think sometimes the way that i write comes off so dark and um like too sad i'm struck Hmm. by how there's just genuine love in in the book amongst the characters and appreciation and i don't know so it's it's beautiful yeah, it's I read on... the first couple of pages when you sent it over. It, oh yes, it was it was really sharp. I definitely want to finish that one. She's awesome. I can't wait to talk to her. It's on Two Dollar Radio. Everyone should get it and come to that event and listen to her delightful Australian accent. I've read like half of Transit of Venus, which I'm loving still, and Yay. I've been reading some friends' manuscripts. Oh, Ooh. we got to shout out our uh, our buddy Emily Adrian has a story up at yes. granta today and it's just a fucking knockout so definitely check that out it's called e friends at granta yeah i'm savoring it i get to read like little bits here and there and it's awesome yeah it's so good um yeah yay go reading go reading <laughs> <laughs> um we'll put that on t-shirts for you guys one day Ooh t-shirts yeah hint hint um mm-hmm. but that's it i hope you we win big on the super bowl and i hope your adventure Thanks, doesn't lead you to a a vine that kills you mm, it won't i hope it just caresses you sure, okay so. <laughs> Bye. Bye. i'm a writer but is recorded by alex hickley and me Lindsay hunter in our respective basements Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.